Thank you for listening to this sermon from Hope Church, Toronto West. It is our prayer that through these audio sermons, you are challenged and transformed by the Word of God, built up in love and faith, and drawn more to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now as you prepare your heart to receive God's Word, we pray that His Spirit would use the sermon powerfully in your life. Good morning, Hope Church. Good morning. Um, I'll just call out the obvious. It's very hot in this room, so if you fall asleep, there's grace. But if you faint, I need equal amount of grace. Um, my name is Daniel. For those of you who are new, I'm, I'm the pastor of, over our youth and children's ministry here. Our senior leader, Jason, will be back in just a couple weeks to open up the word with us. But I counted an incredible privilege of my life to be able to do this with you. So would you open up your Bibles to Psalm 139, Psalm 139. If you need a Bible, the ushers are in the row right now. They can give you a copy of God's Word and, um, and turn there right now. Uh, the title for today's message is Too Wonderful, Too Wonderful for Me. And uh, a little fact for you about Depika, Derek and I, that's my wife and my son. We enjoy going to Niagara Falls. It's kind of a, a place we frequent. Um, if we're away you're, and you guess we're at Niagara Falls, you're probably right. And one thing that we always do, and everyone does when they go to Niagara Falls, is they go right up to the falls and they look, look at it, right? And they marvel at this, this wonder of, this, of the world, this incredible sight, this massive waterfall. And uh, there's a part in the falls, you know, right in front of the table rock uh, center, and it's, 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 the, it's right where the water falls over the edge. And that's where it's most crowded because everyone's kind of looking over the edge and just watching the waterfall. And so whenever we can and we, we sneak in there and we're looking at it, I don't know why I do this, um, but I always look over to Topeka and I say, I think if I fell in, I could outswim this thing. And <laughs> she, it, she reacts just like that. It's like a, huh. And it, it's just so ridiculous. I just say it because the re- reality is I can't. You know, if I get pushed into that water, I am being consumed and dragged over those falls. It doesn't matter what happens, I'm going, I'm going over. And to be honest, as I'm telling Topeka, hey, I think I can swim this, I'm like holding on to the edge just in case some teenager accidentally bumps me in clumsily. And the reality is the falls are wonderful. But in a real sense, they're too wonderful for us. The falls are wonderful but they are both awe-inspiring and fear-inducing. They're both tremendous and terrifying, wonderful, at the same time, intimidating. You know, sometimes I see kids, you know, jump on the railings and sitting on the railings, and I know Derek will probably attempt that one day knowing him, and the parents are like, get off the railing. Don't do that. And it's because I don't think kids really understand how wonderful the falls are and... And just imagine for a second that the falls had no limit, that they could just pour over the rails and and wash us away. How terrifying would that be? But that, in a very small way, in a very small glimpse, is what God is like. He's wonderful, yet too wonderful for us in his limitless being. So as we read Psalm 139, thanks, brother. (laughs) 
So as we read Psalm 139, uh, David, the choir master, as it says, he masterfully communicates in this song both who God is and how, and how knowing God should impact our hearts. Uh, psalm 139, I just want to be on the outside. Outside is a very theological psalm. And what I mean by that is that this psalm teaches us about the nature of God. You know, in this psalm, we will see that God is omniscient. That means he knows all things. That God is omnipresent. That he exists in all places. And that he is omnipotent. That he is so powerful, especially powerful in his creative power. And when David sings about these attributes of God, it's not just head knowledge for him. It's, just, it's not just theological words. It deeply impacts his heart. And as we read this psalm, we get this deep sense of how wonderful God is, but also this holy apprehension and fear and intimidation of God. A.W. Pink, a well-known uh, biblical scholar, says this when he reflects on Psalm 139. He says, the thought of God's omniscience should fill us with uneasiness. Just like when we look over the falls and we're a bit uneasy at the flow and rate of that water, my hope today is that as we encounter God this morning in his word, that we'd be excited, that we'd be encouraged, and at the same time, we'd be just a bit uneasy with the God that we're confronted with, this wonderful, this too wonderful God. That being said, let's read Psalm 139. So the word of the Lord said. The choir master, Psalm of David, our Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. But where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed me, you formed my inner parts, and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, but as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Try me, and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way 
you're taking uh, notes this morning, you can write this down. God knows me intimately, and that is, number one, intimidating when I know who God is. Psalm 139, the repeated theme, uh, the truth, the theology that David keeps getting at us is that there is a God who is all-powerful and limitless, but hear this, this God knows us. He knows us, and he knows us intimately. To David, this truth is wonderful, something to be praised. And we see that really expressed in the last eight verses of the psalm, and we'll get there in a moment, but the first two stanzas of this poem, the first two first few verses, we really sense in David this apprehension and uneasiness when he starts to understand just how God knows him so intimately. In verse 6, David says that such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. To, to David, the knowledge that God has of him is overwhelming. It's too wonderful. That phrase carries with it a negative connotation, actually. That God is too much for me. That God is so wonderful that it is intimidating. And I want us to, to dig into this a little bit deeper and, and see what, it is, what is it about the nature of God that makes his knowing us intimidating. So if you're taking notes, write this down. God's intimate knowledge of me is intimidating because God is first he is all-knowing, and his knowledge of me is invasive. God is all-knowing, and his knowledge of me is invasive. Let me read to you again the first five verses. David says, O oh Lord, you have searched me, and you've known me. You know when I sit down, and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you're acquainted with all my ways. Even before words on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind before, and you lay your hand upon me. Again, we see that God is all-knowing. There's nothing that he doesn't know about you and about me. There's literally nothing we can do, nothing we can say, nothing we can even think that God doesn't already know. Verse 4, before a word is on our tongue, God knows it all together. And this this attribute of God, his all-knowingness, his omniscience, it's, it's truly wonderful. It's very beautiful, especially when you consider that God knows us in a very personal and relational way. It's not like God has a hard drive in heaven with preloaded information about all of us and that he flips on his device, oh, here's Gary, let me see what, what you know, oh, that's who Gary is. No, no, God doesn't know of us. He doesn't just know of us. Kind of the way when we, we're thinking of someone, someone famous, when we go on Wikipedia, we're like, blah, 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 blah. oh, wow, I know so much of this person now. No, God doesn't just know of us. He knows us. In verse 2, it says that he discerns our thoughts, that he's thinking about what we are thinking. And, and notice how he does that. He does it by watching every instant when we sit down and we rise up. We understand this, right? We know, when we know someone so well, right, you can tell what they're thinking by their posture when they're sitting down and relaxed and when they're rising up. You know, I, I can't hide my thoughts from Dupika 
just by the way I'm sitting on the couch, Dabika can be like, yo, what's, what's wrong? What's wrong with you? And I was like, how'd you know something was wrong? Dabika can read me by my posture in the same way God is able to read us. He sees us. And what's amazing is he's just discerning us. He's thinking about what we're thinking about. In verse 3, it says that God is acquainted. He's acquainted. He's very personally involved and acquainted with all my ways. But how does he know everywhere I'll go? How does he know every decision I'll make? Well, because it says in in verse 3 that he searches out my path and my lying down. Derek is my son. Uh, he's two, almost two years old. Uh, he's, uh, he, he's young, so he's not too complicated. And I really, I search out his ways. Like, I, I know his routines. I know at 7 o'clock, he gets up. And I know exactly what he's going to do. He's going he's gonna to drink some milk, and then he's going to run out the door before I can change his diaper. And he's going to knock on our bedroom and say, Mommy, come play. Like, that's, I know his ways intimately. As, a, as parents of young children, we literally see the routines and ways of our children from morning to night. And God knows our ways far more perfectly than any earthly parent can know their, their young children. And, and this is a wonderful truth that God personally and actively searches, discerns, and knows. It's truly wonderful. But don't miss this. At the very same time, it is very invasive. It is very uncomfortable if you think about it, how much God knows us. That there is nothing about you that God doesn't know. He knows you better than you know yourself. You can't evade him. You can't keep any secrets from him. He can't be duped. He can't be toyed with. He just knows. And in verse 5, David, understanding the weight of what it means to be known by the all-knowing, He says this in verse 5. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. And I think at at a surface level reading, we're like, oh, hem, it's so beautiful. I love hems. But what does the word hem mean? It means to besiege. To besiege. That is literally what Russia is trying to do right now in the eastern cities of Ukraine. It's trying to surround them, capture them, and, and, and take them over. And, and David, when he reflects on the knowledge of God, says, you're, you, you're besieging me. Like, you are all around me. David has been captured and surrounded by God. And then this leads David to wonder, is it possible for me to get out of this? Like, is it, can, can, I, can I escape God? And the answer to that is uh, a, a big no, right? You can't escape God. And that's, and that's our next thing I want you to notice about God. First, that he's all-knowing and his knowledge of us is invasive. But next, he's all-present. And his presence with me is inescapable. Notice verse uh, 7. It says, where shall I go from your spirit? And look at the wording here. Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, even, even there. God's presence is inescapable. David is not trying to run to God's presence. He's contemplating, how can I run away from it? He's completely hemmed in, besieged, surrounded. And, and he begins then to, to reflect, okay, on how how much God 
is ever-present. And he, he draws a graph for us. And you're like, what, what are we we're talking about math now? And, uh, and David, he, he kind of, he does, he draws a graph, and I want to explain it this way, because I know some of you are poetic, and you read this, and you understand it, and some of you are not, and you need a graph to help you explain this. But, so look at, what, look at what David does. He, he first, he draws a vertical line, okay? The vertical axis. He says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. He tries to imagine the highest point that he can go to, and he says that the highest point you are there. And then he says in verse 8, if I, if I make my bed in Sheol, lowest possible place to death, to hell itself, even there God is. And so he draws this vertical axis. And then in verse 9, David starts to draw uh, the horizontal axis. He says, if I take the wings of the morning, and it's, it's beautiful language. What that means is, he's like, if I become a bird, I take, I take on wings, and I fly into the morning. If I sl- fly into the sunrise, and the sun rises in the east. So if I fly into the horizon to the east, God is there. And then he says, and if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. And so what you've got to understand is that the Mediterranean Sea is west of, uh, of Israel. And so for them, if you look out and you see the sea and you see the horizon of the end of the sea, that's as far west as you can go. And so he says, if I go, if I go all the way up, if I go all the way down, if I go all the way here, if I go all the way there, God is there and then everywhere in between. So then, and I think this makes logical sense, if you're trying to get away from someone and they're in every place you can go, what do you do? Well, the next logical place is the darkness. Maybe a dark corner conceal me. Maybe I can hide at night. And that may work in a game of hide and seek, but there's no playing games with God because he can even see in the darkness. Verse 11 and 12, he says, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day for darkness is as light with you. Imagine the best Uh, night vision goggles you can imagine God sees clearer in the dark than even that then then David transitions I want us to understand that he really does believe is wonderful yet yes he believes it's too wonderful but it is still wonderful in verse 10 he, he notes that even there even there in, in any place I can imagine I can go, you will be there. And even there, your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. What David is saying is that no matter where I am in my life, that God is there. That he is able to lead and comfort and hold me, even in the, in the dark times in my life. And in, in the Psalms, darkness is, a, is really is an image of suffering and pain and And when life is falling apart around me and all I see is darkness and I wonder, can God be in this? Where are you, God? He is there. The darkness is as light to him. He's he's not missing in action in the darkest moments of your life. He's there. And I do pray that these verses bring comfort to those of us who are struggling in, in dark times, wondering where is God? He's there. But we can't miss that this these verses are communicating something terrifying about God. 
you know, often we see these verses as inspirational quotes on, uh, on, on paintings and mugs. But it's interesting to me that the prophet Amos, when he uh, borrows this language and he records it in Amos chapter 9, and you don't need to turn there, I'll, I'll read it for you, but if you can take a note of that, Amos chapter 9, when Amos uses this poetic language, he talks about God judging Israel. I'll read it to you and just listen to the similarities. Amos 9 verse 2. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there my hand will take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them in, uh, for evil and not for good. In Amos chapter 9, the omnipresence, the ever-present God is a threat. So when we approach God in worship, as David does here, let's have a right sense of who our God is. He's not someone to trifle with. He's not someone you mess around with. He is the all-knowing and ever-present God. And that's both incredible and intimidating. May we be filled with a right sense of awe and reverential fear of God. God is threatening by the very nature of who he is. And, and many people who don't believe in God, unbelievers, this is particularly why they find the God of the Bible so offensive. Psalm chapter 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What the psalmist is saying in Psalm 2 is that people are enraged by this God, this omnipresent, this omniscient God, that to them, he is smothering. To them, they want to escape him. To them, they want to be free, completely free from him, to try to remove his bonds and his cords on their lives, but they can't. It's futile. God is God. And that's really the key difference, I think, between the heart of a believer and an unbeliever. When we, when we think of the nature of God, what threatens a believer about God ultimately leads them to submit and to enjoy God, to worship him, to be in awe of him. And what threatens an unbeliever about God leads them to resent God, to ignore him and his word and to attempt to push him away. Question for us is, where are we this morning? Where are we? We see that God is all-knowing. His knowledge of us is invasive. He's all-present, and uh, we cannot escape his presence. And finally, we see here that the so he's the sovereign creator, and he has made us intricately. Uh, look in your Bibles now uh, to verse 13. I'm going to read verse 13 uh, to 16. David says, for, for you have formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, 
My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes uh, saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there is not one of them. Uh, David starts uh, this stanza of his song with the word for. It's a connector. He's connecting what he's talked about, the omniscience, the omnipresence of God in verses 1 to 12 to this image of pregnancy and, and the conception of life. What's happening here? Uh, the Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner, he says this, and I'll, I'll say it because I think he says it so wonderfully and then I'll explain it. He says, God not only sees the invisible and penetrates the inaccessible, but he is at work there, the author of every detail of my being. So what does that mean? God sees everything, even the invisible. His omniscience, his all-knowing. When a, 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 when a mother is pregnant with her child, before even she knows that the child exists, sometimes that's days, sometimes that's weeks, and in very rare circumstances, and it does happen, sometimes it is months before a mother even knows that there is a child in her womb. Yet God sees that invisible child. Yet God sees to the places that we cannot see. And not only does he see it, but he is present in the womb. He is knitting together and forming the places that we cannot go. He goes. The, the, the things that are invisible to us are completely bare before him. You know, verse 15 and 16 says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. That's an image of the womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. It's incredible. He's, he not only sees us and he's with us, but his hands are at work, sovereignly creating us, forming us, knitting us together, intricately weaving us. Uh, these words, they, commit, uh, they communicate this intentional way God forms us. And we are all very complex beings. We are physical, we are emotional, and we are spiritual. Yet God has his hand on every part of who we are. And not just forming us, but forming also our days. Verse 16, it says, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me before any of them, uh, before, uh, when as yet there was none of them. Before we are born, our creator has sovereignly decided our whole lives. Uh, there, there's, there's really so much to say about the issue of life in the womb. And we will be addressing these things more fully in the fall and the winter, especially with the mandates of the liberal government that are uh, targeting pregnancy care centers. So know that we will treat this more fully. But I just want to see something here. Life begins at conception. That even before a person has lived out any one of their days, God has a plan for their lives. As our inward parts, that's our organs, as they are formed, and as our frame, that's our bodies, are being built, we are then, not fully formed yet, but being formed, we are then, even then, human beings, image bearers of God, precious children to God. 
And God is at the center of this wonder. In God's eyes, the miracle of conception, gestation, and birth, it's his. The womb is his. The child is his. It is he who fearfully and wonderfully makes us. It is he who knows us intimately, even within the womb. He is the one who knows the very core of our being because he is the one who made the very core of our being. And as David contemplates this wonderful truth about God, he begins to move from this uneasiness towards praise of his wonderful God. And even though the presence of God is still threatening, he wants to sing. He wants to write a song of praise and worship. And that leads us to our our second and, and final point. You can write this down. God knows me intimately, and that is first intimidating when I really know who God is. But it's also at the very same time wonderful. For God is with me. Notice, as David contemplates God's wonderful, especially uh, him being fearfully and wonderfully in his mother's womb, in verse 14, look at what he says. He says, I praise you. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And then as we go now into verse 17 and onwards, we see this unreserved awe and worship of God. David breaks through after, after this reflection uh, into a place of from, from a place of apprehension to a place of adoration. In verse 17 onwards, no more do you, you see words like trying to escape God's presence or feeling hemmed in. Instead, actually, we see David have three worshipful responses uh, to, towards God. That is, he really understands and, and grapples with how wonderful God is and how wonderful his works. We see three worshipful responses. So you can write this down. When I am... With my wonderful God, it creates in me first affection and awe for God. Affection and awe. See, when David reflects on the nature of God and all that God knows about him, when he reflects on the fact that every one of his days and every last detail of his lives has been determined by God, he then declares in verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How precious. To David, God is precious. He's a treasure. He loves him. He's affectionate towards him. God, and every one of God's thoughts, he's so amazed and, 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 and truly loves God. But we also see along with this affection comes this awe and wonder at God. He realizes that he can't comprehend this God, that there is no way for him to even count all the thoughts. He says, In verse 18, if I would count them, all the thoughts that God has, they are more than the sand. He cannot comprehend God. It's like counting every sand of grain, every grain of sand in the world. It's impossible. And God's mind and thoughts are so vast, they are far above our own mind and thoughts. And all we can do is stand in awe and affection for God. That's the first response of worship. The second that we see in David is is anger. Anger when God's name is taken in vain. Verse uh, 19, David says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your, uh, Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them 
my enemies. In, in, in these verses, we see David getting angry. He gets angry at evil. And not just that, at those who do evil. See, what, what's, what we're seeing here is that as David is hit with how wonderful God is, he naturally becomes deeply offended by those who take God's name in vain. The word, the word vain can mean empty. It means nothing. It means worthless. David is rightly angered when people treat God as though he is nothing or though he is worthless. Because to David and to us, church, God is wonderful. He is not worthless. When, when people commit acts of evil and great injustice in direct violation of God's word and do it without any fear or, reg- or regard for God, David says he hates those who do those things. And, and as we read these verses, I, it's a bit uneasy. And there was a part of me who was like, you know what, I'm just going to skip over verses 19 to 22 and let's go right to 24. But I can't. I can't. These words are in God's word. So what are we seeing here? We don't cringe at this. We need to understand what is happening, what David is saying. You, you're wondering, how can I hate someone? How can I count people my enemy? But we need to understand this. Love is not the, is not the opposite of biblical hate. Love is not the opposite of biblical hate. Romans 12.9 calls us to lo- for our love to be genuine. And it says in order for our love to be genuine, we need to abhor what is evil. See, when someone sets themselves up against God and takes his name in vain and does evil, we don't just hate their sin. We are deeply, deeply troubled by who they are and who they are becoming. Notice, though, that David is not saying that he hates, he hates everyone, okay? David is not saying that he hates every sinner. We are all sinners, and everyone is in need of God's grace and God's help. But David is speaking of a specific person. He calls them men of blood. These are men and women who are, who are guilty of great injustice, of harming the innocent and taking their lives. And, and, re- and remember, too, that David is also a king. And the people that David is in connection with are, are rulers and, and, and leaders who have made it their purpose to destroy the people of God and defame God himself. Uh, defame God himself. Their, their sole agenda is to oppose the glory of God, to harm innocent lives. And church, what the scriptures call us to is a godly hate of evil and a deep troubling in our souls of those who do evil. But notice though, hate doesn't mean we take vengeance. No, 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 no. David prays here that God would slay the wicked. He does not take it into his own hands. And when you study the life of David, David was actually very patient. Absurdly patient and gracious with his enemies. Even more so with us. Because we're commanded to love our enemies. Pray for those who persecute us. For vengeance is not ours. It's the Lord's, the word says. 
Jesus is the one who stands as judge and the one who will take vengeance. And some of those who do evil, they will repent and they will find in Jesus forgiveness and the vengeance they deserve will be carried out in the blood and body of Christ. But those who are unrepentant will face the full wrath of God for their sin. See, when we understand how wonderful, how worthy God is, we will also find that there are things that are so unlike God, so unwonderful, that they are worthy of hate. And now, after I preach, I preach this, if, if you in your heart and your mind are, are pumping your fists and you're saying, yeah, this, like, let's stand up against evil. Let's hate evil. Then a warning for you. Be careful. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall, 1 Corinthians 10, 12. David understands that he is a sinner too, that he needs God to search him, to know him, and to lead him. That we all within us have this great propensity to do evil, and we need the invasive knowledge of the inescapable presence of God to hem us in and to keep us from walking away in sin. And David knows that in life and in our lives, we are constantly before a crossroads. One way leads to sin. That's the grievous way. And there's a way that leads to everlasting life. That can also be translated in verse 24 to the ancient way. That there is a godly, good path for us to live our lives. And we need to. And this is the third way in which we worship God. We have an urgency for God to search, know, and to lead us in ways of everlasting. Church, I am really sweating it out here. This is amazing. I was playing basketball yesterday, and I think I'm sweating more than yesterday. I want us uh, to end our reflection in Psalm 139 in verse 18, in the last part of verse 18, because many commentators agree that this verse is the, the climax of the song. It's the, it's the bridge. You know, and, uh, well, we only have two instruments up here, but just imagine we had a bunch of instruments up here, and it's the bridge, and all the instruments are playing, and it's like, it's that euphoric moment in the worship where all our hands are up. This verse in Psalm 18 is the climax, it's the pinnacle. And what does David say? What's the lyric in the song? He says this, I awake and I'm still with you. Verse 18, the last, the last few words, he says, I will wake and I am still with you. Now what, what does that mean? Well, often in the Old Testament and New Testament, sleep is an image of death. And what David realizes is that if God is with him everywhere, even in the womb as he enters into the world, then he will be with him in the tomb as he passes from this life to the next, that nothing can separate him from the presence of God, neither life nor death. And that when he arose from the sleep of death, he would be with God. When our Lord Jesus, when he walked uh, this earth, 
he raised three people uh, from the dead. First was the son of a widow who had died. And as Jesus saw the widow crying, he went over to her son, he touched the coffin, and he told the man, arise, which literally means wake up. And he came back to life, Luke 7. Another instance involved a man named Jairus. And Jairus came to Jesus and asked him to heal his sick daughter. Now, by the time Jesus got to Jairus' house, it was too late. The girl had died. As everyone is weeping, Jesus says to them that the child is not dead, but she's sleeping. Jesus, our Lord, then takes the little girl by the hand. He says to her, little girl, I say to you, arise. And she wakes up from death, Mark chapter 5. Finally, there was a man named Lazarus in John chapter 11. And we see Jesus traveling with his disciples to go heal this man who's on the brink of death. But as it would happen during Jesus' travels, Lazarus dies. Then Jesus tells his disciples that Lazarus has fallen asleep and that he's going to wake him up. And Jesus does just, just that. And when he's talking to Lazarus' sister, he tells her in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Church, do we believe this? Do we believe that God is for us? That he did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all? That Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is now at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? In the same way that David could not escape God's presence because of the cross of Jesus Christ, because of his life, death, and resurrection, we cannot escape the love of Christ. No, in all things, in all places, in all ways, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That though we die, we will live. And when we wake up, we will be with him. Isn't that wonderful? In many ways, it's too wonderful. It's overwhelming to know such an awesome God and Savior like Jesus. He knows our hearts. He resides in our hearts by his spirit. He knows everything about us. He is present with us everywhere. He promises to go with us to the very end of the age and to be with us. And by his spirit, he recreates us. The miraculous work he does in the womb, he does again for those who puts their faith in him, making them new. And he promises that even though they die, when they wake, they will be with him. Church, let's worship this wonderful God and Savior today. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. You are a tremendous, awesome, life-giving God. And we understand now that you are not a God who we can trifle with, that you are a big God. And by your very nature, being the all-knowing, being the all-present, being the all-creative and powerful one, by your very nature, we should be fearful. And Lord, we do tremble at the thought of you. And at the same time, we worship because you are with us. You're with us always to lead us 
that you will be with us, not just in this life, but by the cross of Jesus Christ and through faith in him, we will be with you in the next. And that's our hope, and we love you. And Lord, as we sing, help us declare with one voice how truly awesome you are. In Jesus' name, amen. For more resources and information about Hope Church Toronto West, please visit hopechurchtw.ca.